Welcome to the RCIA Hollywood Podcast, coming to you weekly from Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Los Angeles. RCIA Hollywood is a program designed particularly for artists who have an interest in exploring the Catholic faith in a systematic way, with the possibility of being fully admitted into the church during the Easter season. RCIA stands for Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults, and it's a process that dates back to the very first centuries of Christianity. This week's class on the Sacrament of Marriage is led by Patrick Coffin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for bringing us together tonight. Thank you, Lord, for, uh, for making us man and woman, and for creating us, in a sense, Lord, for each other, um, which reaches its great pinnacle in the sacrament of, of marriage. Um, thank you, Lord, for human love, for human dignity, and for the great gift of sexuality, the, the power, the um, poetry in it, the great energy, and the life-giving force that ultimately resides in your sacred heart. Lord, this whole area is sometimes um, touched by sin and touched by um, shame and hurt. And as we uh, discuss marriage and sexuality and all the uh, giftedness that you have endowed it with, uh, give us a special blessing of your Holy Spirit and uh, restoration and hope for healing. And uh, be with us in a special way. You who promised to be with us where two or more are gathered in your name. And we ask the special intercession of the Blessed Mother as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Patrick Payton, pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I cannot believe it's been three years since I, uh, I filled in before here, around this time, uh, winter 05. Uh, my name is Patrick Coffin. I'm a uh, native of Nova Scotia, which is a state near Maine. Go to Maine and make it right. No, I'm Canadian. I, I was born and bred there. I, I taught high school in a former life, and um, I was in a uh, seminary program in, in the city of Ottawa, the capital city, and eventually made my way to Franciscan University of Steubenville, where I graduated with a master's degree in theology in 1997. And uh, I've been writing and speaking about the intersection between uh, culture and Catholicism for about 15 years. I'm uh, looking forward to my, my first book coming out later this year from Emmaus Road Publishing called Sexo Naturel, a guide to um, understanding and explaining Catholic teaching on birth control. So tonight we're going to talk about marriage and, uh, and sexuality and Catholic sexual ethics with re respect to, uh, to matrimony. And uh, I was thinking that it'd be much better to come around a table rather than at that stadium-like mm -hmm. affair. But as soon as I sat down, I felt like a munchkin <laughs> in need of a lift. So I'm just going to need a better chair. Pop this down. No, I'm cool. <laughs> yeah, that's going to leave a mark. We can get you some books. Yeah, you know what? I thought uh, catechism. <laughs> Standing on the shoulders of giants. Thank you. <laughs> so. Um, Rather than inflict me talking for two hours on you, feel free to interrupt at any point. Um, apparently, the, the podcast mic is extremely sensitive. Little Mike, we love you. You can't offend us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, feel free to, uh, to dig in if, 
I know what it's like to hear someone talk, and then if they don't make a distinction, you wish they, they did. So feel free to, to raise your hand, and then we'll backtrack and make it kind of a rambling discussion rather than a uh, formal talk with Q&A. See, I didn't say dialogue, <laughs> which is a, a word that gives me the willies. So uh, I thought it would be a good idea, like, um, like a good diamond salesman who will set his diamonds on black so that they'll shine brighter, rather than start talking about what, what the church says about marriage. I thought I'd just kind of throw it in your laps and ask you what everyone else thinks about marriage. What does, what does marriage mean to most people today? And by the way, we should maybe go around. I'm Patrick, just so I can put a name in your face. Okay. Patrick? Deanna. Deanna. And Dan. Dan, okay. Jennifer. Jennifer. Ryan. Ryan. Tim. Tim. I'm writing them down, and you guys are. Chris. Chris. <laughs> yep. Graham. Graham. I like that answer. Roberta. Roberta. George. George. Genevieve. Genevieve. Benedict the 16th. Benedict the 16th. Your whole name is so that's good. Where's your ring? I know she brings it in your back pocket. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and just so you know, we do have a couple of married uh, couples here. Oh, great. Who's, who's married yeah, here? Yeah, that's a good question to ask. Great. Okay. Uh, to anyone else here? Not yet. Those two. Okay, great. Uh, to each other? Yeah. To each other. No, my wife's at home with her baby. Okay, oh, great. He just had a kid. Just this Congratulations. Yes, their second. Do you miss this whole sleeping eight hours thing? <laughs> no, she's been great. She's really That's good. cool. I, I have two under uh, under five <laughs> yeah. girls. Now, the sex of the next baby does not matter. I told God that as long as it's a healthy boy. <laughs> and so, really, we're in the same boat with two girls. Yeah. You have two girls? Yeah. Oh, great. How old's the oldest one? She's three and a half. Oh, cool. That's a great age. They learn the word no. <laughs> okay, so no one else is. Uh, so it's you, you three. Okay, cool. All right. So what? Have, what? Have, you know, a lot of people think that um, the idea of marriage between one man and one woman that's exclusive and open to to new life and uh, is indissoluble is everywhere around the world. It's not. It's only in the Catholic Church that those um, qualities are taught with any kind of firmness. There are some. Um, evangelical Protestants that are anti-divorce, uh, um, but even all the mainline old-mind Protestant denominations are are completely um, um, not opposed to the idea of a marriage dissolving and then entering into another one. Um, so, wh I mean, what do, you, what do you think? Do you think marriage is is highly valued, even though it's not practiced as such? Do you think it still remains kind of an ideal that most people want? What do people think? That most people want. Is that yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, absolutely. people, yeah. even though people are marrying later, yep. you think it's still I think something. It's, I think, especially <clears throat> in the twenty and thirty-year-old generation, they are wanting it to last. Mm -hmm. I think that's because they're looking at the the boomer generation and the immediate post-World War II mm -hmm. crowd that gave us the divorce rate that we have today. You think it's. Yeah, that's yeah. probably right. There's like a backlash against all the dissolution mm -hmm. of marriages. Um, I was going to mention this later, but I can now. This is this is part of the of the reason why the church gets attacked for teaching that divorce and remarriage is immoral and destructive, 
is that uh, ever since the late 60s, we s we've started to live in an era of divorce, and not just husband from wife, but from uh, uh, in the political realm, you have the private life and the personal life. There's this big abyss between them, as though, you know, we're looking this week at the spectacle of the governor of New York falling from a very high place, uh, and already the dissent defenders are are uh, are at bat, ready to excuse away that because it didn't affect his ability to govern, as though there's this big divorce between what I do off hours as a leader and what I do on hours is somehow not, not integrated. Um, we've separated faith from reason. We have separated um, religion from science. Uh, the idea of truth belonging in one place or truth emanating from a single source is antithetical to the way we think today. Um, after the Second Vatican Council ended in 1965, Catholics have begun to um, kind of recalibrate their relationship to the Church a a as though the Church had recalibrated herself to the world. And there's like this, this link, these uh, rings that link um, that relationship. So once the, when the Church decided that the, the world was no longer to be seen only as the fallen dominion of Satan, but rather part of the goodness that God created, uh, some Catholics, um, in particular what I would call middle management catechetical leaders, began to interpret that to mean that, well, everything in the world is good, and we have to, as much to learn from the world as we do from the church. And so uh, another separation that happened was the separation between conscience and the teaching of the church. So now we have this another private little sphere of autonomy. And we think that's like being a son or a daughter, but it really, of course, isn't. It's more like being a willful employee to a boss who may or may not <laughs> support what you like. And again, if you can hide it, then it's none of the boss's business, as some defenders of the governor of New York and what happened, uh, you know, 10 or more, or more years ago with the, with the president. I just, I, I don't like to, to rejoice in the downfall of anyone. But what really drives me insane are the defenders of the behavior. That's when I get um, uh, antsy because you know, let the guy let the guy fade away, let the guy heal with his family, and so on. But to defend it or to say that my private decisions have no way, uh, no influence on my my public decisions, I think is is nonsense. So um, I think the spirit of divorce started in the 1500s with the Protestant Reformation. I think that was the first deep cleaving or deep division in the world. Um, even the church's split between East and West in 1054 when Orthodoxy and all the, what are called, autocephalous churches broke from communion with Rome, you still had a basic unity. You still had valid sacraments. You still had an understanding that we are Christendom. But with the Protestant Reformation came this division between Christ and the church. And Christ was good, Christ is the only savior, but the church is somehow a, an additional accretion, like a, a barnacle, something extra that, that holds people down. And uh, from that fundamental divorce come all the other ones. And when you bring it down to the level of contraception, which we'll, we'll talk about soon, this divorce spirit has, I think, manifested itself in a dualism between the body and the soul. So the self, me, uh, I own my body, like I own my shoe, or I own my cat, or I own my, my car. So my personhood, my self, is invisible. 
and I totally identify with my soul. That's the heart of dualism. And it explains the, the drive toward euthanasia at the other end of life. You look at an inner body on the, on the hospital bed and you say, well, it looks like grandpa, but grandpa's gone. And so we, what we do with Fido, we want to do with grandpa because his real self is thought to be totally absent. This idea that he's a body-soul unity still, even though he may be unconscious, he may be suffering. Um, we don't know what his you know, cognitive levels are. But this, the idea that the soul is utterly separate from the body is totally foreign to the Christian anthropology in which we're made body and soul. That the, the soul is oriented toward the body. That even, even the blessed in heaven, Thomas Aquinas says, even the blessed in heaven before the resurrection are not in great shape. They may have the beatific vision, but they have it in a very strange way because they're not built to be souls in heaven going, you know, hello angels or whatever. Actually, they wouldn't be able to do this, would they? Because that's an arm. <laughs> so we're really made to be uh, creatures that straddle the world of the material and the world of the spiritual. We're animals and we're angels, yet we're not just animals and we're not just angels. We're the only creature like that. And that insight um, in the first three chapters of Genesis is the foundation of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Some, I guess some people have kind of uh, leaked in tonight for that too. Is tonight normally mm -hmm. uh, normally theology focusing on theology by? Okay, because I'm going to accent that a little bit as we go on. So, this uh, the spirit of divorce is behind why marriages tend not to last. I believe it's complicated, and there are other factors and so on. But I think this idea of disunity, even at the at the very level of the human person, is um, is the root cause of many of the problems in theology and in, in the spirituality of marriage. You know, the, the God is one, the church is one. Paul says we believe in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And what is Satan? Satan is, I am legion, you know, for we are many, this uh, splinterizing spirit, this uh, anti-unity spirit is behind all this uh, uh, dissent and, and um, marriage breakdown on a spiritual level. So um, I just want to take a slow, uh, hot air balloon pass over the whole thing. Um, again, please raise your hand. I don't want to go on and on um, for, t for two hours, just me. So um, I'd really like to see you uh, contribute. Um, in 1968, um, Paul VI issued his um, encyclical called Humanae Vitae. It was a long time coming, and I think we as Catholics is there any? How many are baptized? I should have asked that earlier. How many are baptized? Okay. Uh, anyone entering without baptism? No catechumens. No catechumens. No, he, we're heathen. This is a heathen-free zone. Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Everyone's already baptized Catholic here. Baptized Christian. Oh. And yeah. Right. The one baptism. Great. There's that one baptism. It's it's legit. Although I love the. Uh, did you send me the email on? Uh, Probably. On the, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, was it CDF? Yes. There was a question sent to the, um, the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is formally headed by a certain German priest who now lives in Rome named <laughs> Joseph Ratzinger. His, his, successor, <laughs> uh, his successor is uh, from uh, California, actually, uh, Cardinal William Leveda, formerly of San Francisco. And the question was, is it valid to have a baptism if you don't baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Was that it? it? Was like yeah. If if it says if they, the words say the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sanctifier. Right. They offered a couple alternate 
point is they floated a couple of alternates. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, the word came back. Answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> German brevity. Okay. <laughs> so um, I was going to say that as Catholics, we're allowed a little complaints about the church. Okay. You're allowed to complain. This is this is actually a very good book. If you, I recommend it. If you if you have or don't have the Catechism, it's a compendium, and it's just like the concentrated orange juice version of the larger one. It's a great, great summary, and it it gives which numbers they're referring to, which articles, and uh, it's fantastic. And it has a much better uh, index than the Catechism. That would be my complaint about the Catechism. Mm -hmm. Another thing where I think we're permitted to complain about is the timing of some decisions. In 1959 obviously before he died, uh, Blessed John Twenty-Third created what was called the Commission on Birth and uh, Population and Natality. And it had four members, and he wanted the commission to look at the morality of this new invention in the United States that had not been approved yet by the FDA called Enovid, the birth control pill. At that time it was the high-dose birth control pill. So. Uh, in light of the population scare and this uh, this appearance of a chemical contraception that had never been seen before, he um, gathered this commission together, and in, after he died, Paul VI expanded it from four to sixty-four, and they met for uh, five or six years intermittently. There were theologians and lay people from all over the world. Vatican II ended in 1965, and the commission uh, produced two documents a dissenting majority report document and a minority report that was signed by four. So it's like four against 60. And you can Google both. You can, you can find them both online. Uh, and that report was leaked. Before it got to the Holy Father, it was leaked to the press. And uh, the majority report basically said, the pill's different. The pill's not a condom. It's not the same. doesn't have the same kind of moral characteristics as the uh, all the other traditional forms of contraception. Therefore, we vote, we recommend that the Holy Father change the traditional teaching of Catholicism that each and every marital act must be open to new life. So, pressure started to build. Now you have uh, the Summer of Love, you have Haight-Ashbury, you have the killing of uh, Martin Luther King and Robbie Kennedy, and uh, the, Viet the public support for Vietnam War is turning. So it's the crazy 60s, you know, it's the, the age of Aquarius. And all our eyes are on Pope Paul VI. And those eyes stayed on him for two years. He did not do anything until the summer of 1968 when he issued a very shortest, one of the shortest papal encyclicals, there's only 31 paragraphs, called Humanae Vitae. Um, if, if, you didn't, if you didn't know, the first two letters, two or three letters in Latin in the official text make up the name of the document. So Humana Vitae means of uh, human life. In Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes is hope and joy, um, and so on. So that's where Humana Vitae comes from. H-U-M-A-N-A-E-V-I-T-A-E. -E. Yes? I'm sorry, I'm a little confused. So what did the majority say and what did the minority say? The majority said that since the pill does its work invisibly and alters the... Um, cycle of, of feminine fertility, it, it does not deserve the same moral um, proscription as a condom does. And it so, is worse or, or better? Is oh, it's better. better. It's not contraception at all. It's simply, it's simply perfecting nature. Right. Like we wear hearing aids, we wear glasses, we have surgery. Well, now 
the genius of man has, has enabled us to manipulate the menstrual period so that the woman's body believes it's pregnant and does not release an egg and therefore uh, every every day of the month is rendered sterile just like God did naturally through the natural rhythms of fertility and infertility. <coughs> See the human female can only you can only get pregnant one day a month theoretically. There's one ovulation per 29 days or so. And so since human sperm can, can stay uh, motile and um, uh, able to inseminate for four or five days, uh, couples who have a serious reason to not uh, have children would uh, abstain from, from intercourse on those fertile days and then resume their married life on the infertile days. The majority report argument was that the pill simply adjusts some of the uh, chess players and it's wouldn't be wrong. Interestingly, they uh, they say that it should only be done for serious reasons. I mean, it, they weren't trying to open up Pandora's box on purpose. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, couples should be trusted with their own resources and that this is not going to lead to any problems. And after all, we're only scared, the church is only afraid of losing her authority if some couples begin to dissent, which was a, a large part of the minority report argument, which was, no Catholic theologian has ever said the following sentence. Contraception is a good act. It's never happened. From the Church Fathers to um, any Pope that's ever talked about it, any Orthodox theologian for 2,000 years has always said the same thing, that the Marriage Act ought to be open at each, uh, each instance to new life. And so if we're going to backtrack on this, this is going to shake the faith of tens of millions of people because we're now saying that what was treated as a mortal sin is now perfectly fine. So that's what's it, that was what is at stake. Does it help answer your question? Yeah, no, that's yeah. They they really exactly. No, I I thought I wasn't sure which which one was going the right way and which which one was kind of going the I don't yeah. know was it nineteen twenties or thirties Protestant way of yeah nineteen yeah you know, nineteen married and they, they don't you know right right uh, this is a big um, servant of God Fulton Sheen who the man who really brought me back to the Catholic Church he died in nineteen seventy nine he was a great he was the first televangelist. He was uh, on television in 1950, and he wrote over 70 books. He's just, uh, just a beautiful bishop, and um, he's the bomb. Anyway, he said something. <laughs> he said that the Catholic, that millions of people hate what they think the Catholic Church is, but not 10 hate what she really is. And the exact same thing can be said about her teaching on contraception. Um, since we're on it, I'll just... Uh, so do you agree that with the pill? No, I don't, actually. Being, being a Catholic and all, the whole <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I'm going to go into why, why the church teaches that the pill, IUD, condom, uh, coitus interruptus, um, Depro, uh, um, Depro Provera, Norplant, diaphragm, sing from your diaphragm. No, not that one. Uh, are immoral. So here, here's a here's a, a, a twelve question pop quiz. So in, in, mentally go through them. All right. Number one, true or false? Protestants have always accepted contraception. False. Number two, <laughs> Keener's you. Mahatma Gandhi accepted contraception. Number three, <laughs> Sigmund Freud rejected contraception. True. Contra number four, contraceptives have always been legal in the United States. Number five, more contraception leads to fewer abortions. 
Number six, one can be a faithful Catholic and still contracept in good conscience. Number seven, the pill is now medically safe for women. Number eight, the rhythm method is now called natural family planning. Number nine, the church teaches that women should have as many babies as possible. Ten, the Catholic teaching against contraception may change in the future. Number eleven, the Catholic church is opposed to all forms of birth regulation. Number twelve, the Bible is silent on the matter of <laughs> contraception. How do we think they're all false? I don't know. They're all false except for number three. Uh, number three, Sigmund Freud rejected contraception as false. They're all false. Uh, Wait, what? Sigmund Freud did not reject it. Sig I, I put that in as a double negative. <laughs> Sigmund Freud rejected contraception, oh. is, is true. Oh. He did. Uh, Sigmund Freud taught in, 19, in the 1920s in a series of lectures in Vienna that the mark of sexual perversity is precisely when the aim of sexual intercourse departs from reproduction as an aim. That yeah. is the thin edge of the wedge. Mm -hmm. That's what distinguishes perversion from from natural marital sex. Are you say what something? did Gandhi say? Gandhi said that it was mutual masturbation. That then and it would lead to uh, the the man uh, using the woman as a the instrument of consumption. Oh, wow. So this is a non-Catholic, non-Christian Hindu, yeah. and a, J, a, a Jewish atheist agreeing on something wow. that the thing that they both reject has been saying the same thing you know, since the time of Christ. So it's interesting. Now. Uh, now back to my back to the complaint. The thing you're allowed to complain about. Humana Vitae came out so long after the uh, the majority and minority reports were leaked that the pressure that Paul VI put on himself was unbelievable. The uh, the the brevity of the encyclical. He doesn't really argue anything. Humana Vitae has almost no arguments. It doesn't say why natural law. I'm going to get to natural law in a second. Natural law is the basis on which Paul rejects birth control. And he says it's, it's natural law uh, supplanted by divine revelation and that the church's authority has always claimed uh, authority over what the natural law teaches in addition to what the Bible teaches. But he doesn't really justify it. He doesn't really provide foundational arguments for those claims. And um, that was part of the reason why I was so drawn to it when I, when I first read it back in my dissenting liberal days when I gave it a chance, instead of descending without reading it, uh, that it didn't really argue for anything. He wasn't laying out a case. He was just saying, this is my testimony. The first, Paul the first Paul's testimony was to the resurrection. My testimony is to the immorality of birth control. He didn't say a lot about the whys and the wherefores. He did make predictions, though. And the predictions are pretty stunning for, for someone living in 1968. He said that the man would lose respect for the woman and begin to treat her as an as an object of selfish uh, use, kind of echoing Gandhi in a way. He said the governments would step in and use the issue of birth uh, unnatural birth regulation as a way to force its citizens into having a certain amount of children. This is before China's one-child policy. And he said that um, that promiscuity would rise, that you would see a, a breakdown in marriage. This is. You know, this is 1968, still pretty, by today's standards, a pretty conservative era. Five years before that, the best picture was Man for All Seasons. And then it was The Sound of Music. And then by the year after 1960, 1968 was 69, the best picture was 
uh, about a uh, gay hustler, <laughs> Midnight Cowboy. And so from then on, you have this rise of the pornography industry. You have, uh, uh, you know, Norman Lear TV programs that are very, you look at them now, they're pretty amazing. The, the, the messages that are kind of embedded. Watch All in the Family, for instance. You know, I remember laughing at, uh, at Archie Bunker as a kid, but really, he's the foil to ridicule conservative, the conservative worldview. All the sympathies on, is on Meathead and his arguments and so on. And then Maud, another uh, Norman Lear show, was the first major sitcom to mention abortion, very sympathetically, of course. And so um, he was just laughed at. I mean, how can he think that this is going to lead to you know, more abortions and more problems? Isn't the pill a dreamland invention for the liberation of women? Uh, but I think he's... I think he, how right he was makes him a prophet. And he never wrote another encyclical after that. He died in 1978, and uh, the closest he came to an encyclical was a, a, an apostolic exhortation called Evangelii Nunciandi. It's also a tongue twister, um, which is on evangelization. It's a beautiful document. He wrote that in 1975. Um, in 1972, he talked about the smoke of Satan entering the church. He said the smoke of Satan has entered the church. Kind of a cryptic uh, thing to say. He obviously knew more about what was going on in the church than we did at the time. So uh, I think he meant that for the first time in a, in, in a very, very long time, many of the, of the official teachers of the church, the, the public face of the church, no longer have um, the gospel of Jesus Christ as their first loyalty okay. and that they're willing to make compromises. I think he meant that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy, but soon after that he banished the main architect of the, what's called the Novus Ordo, or the, the English, the, the new mass that we have now, it's called the Mass of Paul VI. The main architect of that um, mass was a guy named Annabali Bonini, who was now we know as a Mason, and he was um, exiled to Tehran, Iran, for the rest of his life. So there's, you know, infiltrations, there's compromises, there's... Um, party spirit. Everybody. Yeah, I mean, I guess party spirit. Is it messed up? Or? Uh, no, it doesn't mean it's messed up. It's not invalid, but it... it I would say it, it has subtracted some of the grandeur and the... Uh, there's so many words you could use. The subtle, sublime beauty... The of the mass, the mystery. That's yeah. That's another one. So many. Uh, the new mass can be celebrated beautifully. Uh, I am not an aficionado of the old Latin mass. I've been. It's great. I hope it. I hope its tribe increases and multiplies. I'm so glad Pope Benedict the Sixteenth has opened it up, so that it's a matter of the judgment of the priest if he wants to celebrate if the, if the faithful want instead of the bishop. Bishops used it as a kind of a, a stopgap, you know, to keep the angry right in their place, you know. But now anyone can, any any priest, as long as the faithful want it and he finds it meaningful, can celebrate the Mass, the old, the Tridentine Latin Mass. Um, but I don't really have an agenda against it. Um, John Paul II celebrated the uh, the Novus Ordo, his whole pontificate. So does Benedict XVI, but he also, he also does both. Um, it'll probably make a bigger comeback than people think, and it may not happen this year or, you know, or, or next year. But I think a lot of young people have never seen anything like this. And I remember f when I was just sort of you know, floating around in liberal land, you know, far from Christ, living my own life, 
I had this sense that the church was trying to talk down to me. The relevant music and the, the cool preaching. I never went to a clown mass, but the idea that the church has to be a fool to, so that people will take it seriously or somehow they're afraid of being stodgy. Well, the, the, um, the magnet that the, the traditional Latin mass has become for a lot of young adults in this country and in Europe, I think says something about how hungry people are for mystery, for something beyond an entertainment hour. And that's it's just, hmm? <laughs> really, what, what, was well, your, I mean, what was your background? Just not a nominational Christianity for mm-hmm. my whole life. But that, that's a big reason. That you've, I that's mean, interesting. Cause well, especially more recently, I mean, I've had a lot of bad church experiences with you know, leadership, corruption. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've been going to a lot of non-denominational churches, which entertained. And it was fun at first. It was nice. And it was a great way to introduce my wife to Christianity. It got her, you know, sort of accustomed, accustomed to the culture. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it didn't last very long. And before long, we were just longing for a deeper worship. Was it was the tradition you grew up in uh, liturgical at all, or was it kind of uh, pulpit, Bible, pastor, music? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because when when Catholics leave the Catholic Church to join churches exactly like that, which are usually very friendly, pro-family, they've got Bible study and family programs. You know, Catholics are we show up late to the party. We do in so many ways. Uh, but Catholics who join those churches often say the same thing: I wasn't being fed. And you're saying, fed? I want to be fed by, you know, the body and blood of Christ yeah. instead of, you know, a good preacher or a great music. Yeah. So you have this hands in the air praising the Lord, which is great. We should do more of it. But at the end of that, after you get the T-shirt, I think you, you <laughs> maybe you should, what else is there, you know? Uh, interesting. Not, nothing against raising your hands. Nothing. It's all, it's all perfectly good. So, um... Was someone else? I thought there was another uh, hand raised, or I saw a lip motion, or something. No? <laughs> all right. So, all right. Uh, just kind of lead us back to marriage for a second before we launch into a birth control and, and other harms of marriage. Marriage is the ultimate form of friendship between two sexually attracted people. The ultimate form of friendship between two sexually attracted people. And. It has three main goods or ends, three purposes. You don't have to write these down, the, the Latin down. Proles fides and sacramentum are the, the famous the famous formulation by, by St. Augustine. Maybe I'll just write it here. Proles. The catechism adds indissolubility, but Augustine thought that indissolubility was part of fides. It's interesting to me that you use the words um, between two sexually attractive people. Attracted. Attracted? Yeah, I'm sorry. Attracted. attracted. I have. (laughs) 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 But what about the ugly and the the unattractive? I'm sorry. Yeah, who's going to be the judge? Uh, you know. Sounds like two sexy, attractive yeah, people. Yeah, it's so sexually. Like, Let me rethink this. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, the, yes. The obese and the repulsive have no place in marriage. 
<laughs> Sorry, I have. Uh, I, I'm about to get retainers off my teeth, and uh, then I'll look even less like I'm 14 then. But I, it affects some of my S's, so I'm sorry. Too sexually attracted to each other. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for that. So, proles, fides, and sacramentum. Those are, that, those are the goods of marriage. Uh, proles refers to openness uh, to new life. Openness to um, procreation. Not that every single act of intercourse must consciously desire children. Otherwise, you know, God would be a pretty poor designer because he's made so few days of the month fertile. But that the openness must be there with each act of intercourse. Fides, the building up of faith uh, between the couple, the unity that they, that they enjoy, which is not just pleasure or happiness, it's really unity. Uh, and sacramentum, the fact that Christ has raised this, this natural friendship, natural exclusive friendship, to the level of a sacrament. The Catholic Church has never taught the exact moment when Christ did this. Um, reliable theologians tend to point to the wedding of Cana in uh, the opening of John's Gospel as the time when Christ, by his presence at the wedding of Cana and performing his first miracle there at the request of his mother, is probably the time when we understand marriage to go from natural to a supernatural reality. But uh, unlike some of the other sacraments like um, the Eucharist, where the Last Supper, this is my body, that was when he's instituting that. But still, um, marriage is now a what St. Paul calls in Ephesians 5 a great mystery marriage is the highest natural symbol of God's love for himself in the Trinity and Christ's love for the church there are two accounts as you, as you probably know in, in the book of Genesis the one account is the creation of man Adam, Hebrew for humanity and the second one is, uh, it comes next, male and female he created them in chapter 2. They both tell the same complementary thing, that God has made us in his image and likeness individually, but then he uses the, the uh, first person plural all of a sudden. So this one God, strict monotheistic God, suddenly says, let us make men in our own image which is a very tantalizing thing to say for a God who's only one God. And this is the time when he creates man and woman. Male and female, he created them. This is the first two chapters of, of Genesis. What John Paul II has done in his um, self-named theology of the body is reflected on what that means, to be embodied as a male or a female. And he, he concludes um, in a very original way that man and woman complete each other. They cure loneliness for the other by the other. And their bodies are inscribed with this meaning that he named the nuptial meaning. That the very body of man and the body of woman, because they're designed to fit so well together and facilitate new life, as a couple, man images the Blessed Trinity. There's several different ways to get at this. The doctrine of the Trinity says that God the Father, who created everything, begets a thought of himself from all eternity, and that thought is the Word. Just like you and I, we think a word, and the word forms in our minds. The word is not us, but somehow it belongs to us, because we're thinking of it and someone else is not. And that word is, uh, is um, joined to the Father by a third person. 
to the relationship between the Father and the Son, called the Holy Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the love of the Father and the Son. The Father loves the Son, also known as the Word, infinitely. The Word, also known as the Son, receives that love infinitely and returns it. And together, those two infinite loves, the Word is spirate, spirates out as the Holy Spirit. And that, that is true even without creation. God didn't need to make heaven and earth and Adam and Eve and everything else. He was totally self-subsistent. Didn't need us, didn't need our love, didn't need to die on the cross. He could have saved us with a card trick or a snap of the fingers. So everything else is, is just his deep love of being and sharing being and, and, and giving himself over to, to other little beings made like him. So uh, in marriage, the husband and the wife, in a sense, image the father and the son because from their love, spirates, so to speak, a third love that really is their flesh. It's like a miniature incarnation. The two loves become enfleshed in the person of the baby. And so, seen in that light, contraception is, is really a kind of blasphemy because you're taking the energy that is derived from God's Trinitarian love within himself and you're cutting it off. You're throwing something across it so it can't spirate. It can't produce another like itself it's kind of it's the flow of love is stopped up in an unnatural way and that's why the great uh, the biblical um, biblically based leaders of the of the Protestant Reformation um, from Zwingli to John Knox Luther Calvin almost all of them described contraception as worse than uh, or, or like murder because murder kills I'm not saying I by it as it's stated, but the reasoning was that murder kills a man who's alive, birth control kills the chance of a man to be before his conception. Um, and that's really, that's the tie-in with abortion at that point, because contrary to popular belief, more birth control produces more abortions. Why? Because it increases the pool of sexually active people who believe that they can get away with their sex life and not want to face the consequences at the end of it. Fear is a perfectly wonderful, normal human emotion, and it, it served admirably for generations upon generations uh, to keep people good, to uh, not have them wander. As soon as the pill arrived, um, the idea of adultery being so profoundly wrong lost one more reason. One more pillar was gone. So um, that's really the... Uh, that little, that little, the, back in another way. The will to contracept is very similar to the will to abort because they, they're fruits from the same um, trunk, from the same roots. They both desire the indulgence in sex without desiring the natural result of sex, which is the new human person. And a lot of the um, Catholic dissenters from Humanae Vitae, from Father Charles Curran to a guy named Michael Valente to um, Joseph Fuchs. There's a whole, I mean, there's a whole college of them, practically. Many of them admit that you cannot argue against any other sexual perversion as long as you deny that each act of intercourse ought to be open to new life. How can a couple who are married, who are using the pill, argue against gay marriage or against any, any kind of homosexual acts? They, they, they really can't. 
because the logic has a way of catching up with them. They've already, in a sense, biologically at least, they've gayified their own union by making every act sterile. And therefore, their rationality in condemning other sterile acts is, I would say, compromised. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, Dan. I've had people, yes. I've had people ask me about when discussing uh, gay relationships and also um, birth control. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people bring up the issue of um, people who are a heterosexual couple who are st- one or the other is sterile to begin with. Mm-hmm. What is the difference there? How, how, I mean, how do you address that if it's... Are they naturally sterile? Is there something they didn't do? Yes. Well, then they... A couple where one or both are sterile suffer a defect in their nature. Right. They probably wish that they weren't that way. Right, right. Whereas a male and a male or a female and a female, by definition, are, you know, they're, they're doing what they know beforehand will not produce new life. Not because there's some defect, but because there's a, in a, in a sense, a defect in, the, in the, the identity of the gender of their partner. Right. That'd be the difference. Even sterility, sterility itself is not uh, an impediment to marriage. Right. If, it, for instance, the church always has always encouraged people who are past the childbearing years, they can still marry too. Right. And even though they're, they may be long past, they still don't, they haven't done anything by their decision to um, unnaturally thwart the purposes of sex. That'd right. be, that's the big difference. Right. It's just Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone was thinking that maybe kids is not for them, they mm-hmm. should think about maybe not getting married. Uh, in the Catholic Church, yeah, yeah. If if your average priest hears that in the in the first couple of meetings, that ah oh, no, Father, we don't want any kids. That's a very serious reservation because on on your wedding day you say, do you promise to bring up children according to the law of Christ in the church, yeah. and to be and to be generous? I do. You know, remember that <coughs> commercial? Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Friends don't let friends lie in public. <laughs> so, um, I just have a question. Yeah, sure. Now, when I studied all this about 10 years ago, I remember um, there's a birth control pill on the market that actually is an abortifacient. And I can't remember which one it is, or if it's still on the market, so that it actually, you could conceive while you're on the pill, but because of the chemical in it, it would not allow that new life to... Con- attached to the uterus and so mm-hmm. you were actually causing an abortion. Deanna, I'm glad you brought that up. Jennifer. Jennifer. I'm so Jennifer. That's okay. <laughs> Deanna. You're Deanna. Is, are you, you're Jennifer. <laughs> you can call me uh, Yeah. You said it was not. Okay. There, there are two. The, the first, I was, I was going to, I was going to get to this because it, it dovetails exactly with what we're saying now. The will to contracept and the will to abortion are united in several different ways and one of them is uh, chemically, all birth control pills in the market. I recruit engineers for drug companies. Ortho, Baxter, Watson, none of them can say for sure how they are preventing pregnancy. There are three ways it could be done. The, the main way that, w- that w- it was designed to do was to inhibit ovulation unnaturally. If that failed, there was another effect, and that is to create enough uh, uh, anti- Anti well the natural uh, the natural mucus on infertile days mm-hmm. the cell structure runs uh, counter the motion of the sperm cells mm, it's okay. pretty amazing mm-hmm. on fertile days the channels open and it it can they can travel so that 
this, the molecular structure of that mucus is altered by the pill too. Oh, okay. So the pill, the, the sperm can't make it to its destination. Right. Huh. Okay. And the third way is that it produces an uninhabitable womb. So the uterus is no longer a place where a fertilized egg can implant. Okay. You could ar arguably <laughs> that arguably the pill has produced more abortions than abortion has. Mm -hmm. right. And women never find out unless it's strangely late term and they feel that something went wrong, you know, and so there's a maybe a discernible miscarriage, but usually not. Yeah. It's totally and this is in the fine print yeah. of of the um, of the pill, the so called low dose pill. So that all that all contraception pills do that? No, no pill maker will go on record saying that the abortifacient effect is not present in their product. Mm. Oh, okay. How it can't even be known how what the proportion is because there's no way to test whether or not it's happening, and it wouldn't even be ethical to create such a test. Thousand women off the pill, thousand women on the pill. Okay, let's count up the the, the <laughs> miscarriages. Wow. You know. Yeah. Yes, Chris. Nicely done. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm here all week. Try the veal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was. I'm glad you, you brought that up, and I was really shocked that that, that not everyone knew that that about the pill? Every, every every chemical contraceptive, as far as I know, are is a is an abortifacient, and because it works in three ways, like you're saying, mm -hmm. and we know that there's sometimes where people do get pregnant. That means that all three methods can fail, which which implies that there's times when two of them fail, the two that that prevent, and then one of them uh, doesn't fail. So you have the contraceptive egg going down. Yep. What's going on? Yep. Mm -hmm. The reason people don't care, even when they learn that. Remember, we talked about the the spirit of divorce. They don't care because they've already bifurcated themselves from their at least women, my body. You know, get your rosaries off my ovaries. Get your laws off my whatever the cliche is. <laughs> they 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 think that uh, the 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 life in the womb is really radically different from their life. So there's that kind of schizoid attitude about their own body with respect to pregnancy. Well, I think maybe it, it, in some ways it's the opposite. It's that they think it's part of their body and, and that they they have jurisdiction over it in a way. They, they don't necessarily view it as something that's a unique self, uh, you know, a unique human being, mm -hmm. just like another person in the room. Right. They see it kind of like it, it, it's, you know, a subsection of their body or, or some women. I'm not... Right. I don't want to talk from the woman perspective. I know I'm going to get slammed. Just no, saying there's I, some girls that, that, that think that way in, in terms of, of well, you know, uh, it's not really at that point where it's a unique person. It's just a combination yeah. of cells, right. partly my cells, and right. right. That's true. You, that's the other side of it. But this is why it's schizoid. Yeah. On the one hand, it's my body, including, I guess, the baby I'm going to kill. On the other hand, it's separate, and I want this male baby, but I don't want it if it's a female baby. Oh, and so I want it out too. Like I can. It's separate as far as you know. I. Uh, Oh, if it's my body, then why just why not just mess with you know leave it alone? Why would you want to hack your body or put saline yeah. solution or or yeah right, right? So th there's a kind of schizoid uh, schizoid attitude there. Did I see another hand? Was there a hand raising? I much prefer this back and forth than just me monitoring. <laughs> um, yes. Are you going to cover uh, women who take the pill then for? Because their doctors say it for health reasons, because they're right. having whatever, you know, their 
cycles are not yeah, regularly in. Well, I can handle it right now, since you asked. Well, yeah, like for example, yeah. my wife just had a C-section. Um, she's been warned not to have a baby for 18 months. For how long? For, for health for 18 months. She said, it, mm -hmm. well, somebody said a year, another person said 18 months, another different doctor. Yeah. Um, for health reasons, but the uterus needs time to heal. Sure. But that's a valid medical reason to not have sex on fertile days. It sounds like that would be a clear satisfaction of the criteria for a just reason. Mm -hmm. But introducing a contraception is not really an answer because mm -hmm. then you're piling on another question mark about what we're just talking about. Yeah. Um, Dr. Thomas Hilgers, who was, was he's the inventor of the Creighton model, aka the ov ovulation model of natural family planning. He's in the uh, Omaha. He's the founder of the Pope Paul VI Institute for the Study of Human Reproduction. Another tongue twister. He, Dr. Hilgers um, says that there is no medical reason for the pill. Doctors don't know that there are other methods of natural family planning, so they push the pill all the time. They get kickbacks, they get free samples. It's always pushed on girls, mm -hmm. no matter how what age. Mm -hmm. oh, Make them regular. Mm -hmm. Make them regular. Mm -hmm. So, um, according to Dr. Hilgers, there's there are there are always a non-invasive, non-chemical answer to a, to any kind of hormonal problem that does not doesn't have to be uh, doesn't have to introduce artificial um, medication. Let's say if there wasn't, it it is argued that since a woman needs that, if no other strategy is known, she could licitly take the pill because she's not intending for its contraceptive intent. She doesn't want any of its bad effects. She's using it for a good, you know, kind of curative reason. That's usually argued as falling under. Did you guys do the principle of double effect? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that, would, that would be covered by that. But the principle of double effect wouldn't apply if there are other options. Mm -hmm. So, but unfortunately, most doctors don't know that the other options exist. Yes? What if the woman's cycle is irregular? How is that double natural? The, the woman's cycle can be wildly irregular. And with the Creighton model and the symptothermal model, it doesn't matter because you're, you're testing the biological, biological markers every day. You're not guessing. It's not the old rhythm method where you're counting from the first day of menstruation, counting 14, and hoping and you know, right. saying five rosaries that day. Um, so it's a, it's a daily charting of temperature and mucus viscosity. Viscosity being the slipperiness of the fluid. Pardon me? How long has that been around and what is it called? It's called natural family planning. Um, the concept of tracking a biological sign within the human body was, was discovered at the same time in two different countries, unbeknownst to each researcher. Mm -hmm. One is in Austria, one is in Japan. Um, Kogino and Gnaus, I think they're pronounced. That was in the early 1930s. Okay. They discovered that... Um, this is a whole other exciting scientific field of the signs of fertility. <laughs> the shape of the uterus, the body temperature, the mucus viscosity. I mean, there are 100,000 signs in the woman's body that we, have to do, we haven't even disclosed yet. We haven't even dreamed what they are yet that will further perfect this, this, this ability to predict when is a fertile day and when is not. But it started in the 1930s. And then in the, in the I would say the 1980s, it became 70s and 80s, with the work of an Australian couple, Dr. John and uh, Evelyn Billings. Uh, he just recently passed away. They're real pioneers in NFP, natural family planning. So if a couple, a lot of my friends, 
um, were Catholic and they're trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, by taking the pill, they're just uneducated. Probably. Uh, yeah. If, because if they're trying to do the right thing and they know they're not supposed to take the pill, but they do anyways because they don't want to have to have a kid after a kid, they're just uneducated because there is a way that you could do it without the pill. There's a way you can space births, yeah. You, you're talking about married? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a way. There's a way, yeah, there's a natural way. Well, first of all, breastfeeding is a, is a, a very effective way of spacing births. Um, what do you mean? Well, you know, when the baby is drinking. No. <laughs> uh, uh, it's called ecological breastfeeding. Um, if you Google Sheila Kipley, she has mm -hmm. a book on that. Sheila um, Kipley, K-I-P-P-L-E-Y. -P -P -E uh -huh. That is another way of postponing births up to two years using, um, yeah, a certain method of birth of, uh, of breastfeeding. Breastfeeding um, stimulates a, 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 a non-fertile state. God's really a genius in, in designing things with this, this rhythm of, of life and unity, you know. It's, it's amazing. But yeah, that's Kipley. Yeah, I, I don't, in, in my book, shameless plug, um, <laughs> did I mention I've got a book coming? Uh, I argue that most contracepting couples are not guilty are not subjectively guilty of, of mortal right, sin. Right. They don't know they from know. nothing. Mm -hmm. the, the, the pulpit is silent. Um, most priests, I'm very sorry to say, don't really assertively get it across properly in confession. Right. Um, and it's, I, I had a very liberal ex-priest professor when I was studying philosophy and this topic came up. And uh, he was not married, but he was a former priest. and. His, his gripe was, how can you expect couples to say no those, those few days a month? It's outrageous. Sometimes the woman's <laughs> desire is at its peak, and the, you know this is outrageous. Mm -hmm. And someone raised their hand and didn't have the guts to do it. And they said, um, aren't all priests um, supposed to be abstaining um, every day, all year? <laughs> Thanks for the sympathy, Father. What, you know, what does that say about what you're... No, forget it. <laughs> so... Um, he should have been yeah. uh, arguing for Elliot Spitzer, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was on a business trip. His wife couldn't have been around. The exactly. Course, you know, the poor guy. Abstained. And she was hot. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, yeah. What would you say to couples who, because I know people who have done NFP and they mm -hmm. still get pregnant and they, you know, some of them are frustrated and angry that they, you know, because they did everything right apparently and, and so they just think that, well, why do NFP if it's not accurate? Right. Things like that. So mm. what would be your response? Great question. I have two responses. One, uh, natural family planning has a user rate and an effectiveness rate. There's a, there's, a, there's a theoretical rate of how it should work. Mm -hmm. Then there's the real rate of how it does work day to day because people are not perfect in its implementation. Mm -hmm. The very same thing can be said about the pill or the condom. You know, I was on the pill and I still got pregnant. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous. I mean, who would that person be mad at? The the concept of the company, you know, the pharmaceutical firm, or so. Um, so the first thing I would say is I don't know how um, accurately or diligently they were implementing mm -hmm. their NFP. Doesn't sound <laughs> great, but let's maybe. Say, but maybe the couple, the person that I was talking to yeah. said was was very adamant in saying yes, I was using it. We, my wife and I were using it very 
you know, well, I would say God is a God of surprises, and here's a <laughs> super fantastic Christmas gift that wasn't even uh, sought. Yeah. Be, that's what I would say. Which could have happened if they were on the pill. Which could have the same thing could happen. Yeah, exactly. So that's 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 that that's one. There's no such thing as perfect um, contraception, except mm -hmm. for abstinence. Which is the only known perfect. Never failed. So the second thing is <laughs> some some of the of the literature in the NFP community, in a way, sells itself like it. It doesn't say we're Catholic birth control and therefore it's okay, but they don't really emphasize enough the the attitude of generosity that they should have with God in their married life. Mm -hmm large families are no longer seen as a sign of God's blessing. That is traditional Catholic teaching that's just vanished. The idea that God is going to take care of every little life he brings into a, an open family, in, into their arms. Um, it's, a, it's a, I think, indicative of a crisis of faith. Yeah. We just don't believe that God is our loving Father who knows exactly what we need mm -hmm. for exactly the number of, of kids that he may or may not send. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, a long, it's a roundabout way of saying and I'm not criticizing at all your friends. No, no, but, I think it's But fine. most people don't look at their fertility with a generous spirit. Mm -hmm. They really, you know, it's like the couple who, uh, they speak on NFP around the country and they've been married five years, no kids. And he drives a Jag and they have like a kidney-shaped pool. <laughs> <laughs> they, you can't say they're necessarily, you know, in mortal sin because they haven't committed an evil act, but they're awfully stingy with what could be a, a profound gift, mm -hmm. you know? So that the idea that that God is going to take care of the children that He, that he sends is is uh, almost evaporated nowadays. Christopher West has a great story about kind of discerning the attitudes with which people use natural family planning. He says it's kind of like a wedding. A couples planning a wedding, and uh, the groom has this aunt who nobody really cares for all that much, but we've got to invite her to the wedding, you know. And she lives across the country, so we'll send her an invitation. She may or may not show up. If she shows up, will we receive her with a generous spirit or not? And that's the difference, you know. If she shows up and we welcome her and into the celebration, well, that's the proper attitude of generosity. But if she mm -hmm. shows up and says, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> you know, right? She are we going to send an invite or are we she not? She slipped through. Right. <laughs> Good to see you. <laughs> 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 what time is lunch? <laughs> right. The um, idea I of that no that no contraception is one hundred percent accurate or effective. Yes. Reminded me of an argument that I heard from some people that I know that so they're open to, so if what would you say to someone who said well we're, we're using the pill but we're open to a child we just it's really not a, you know they would use all the arguments for NFP if they time. were Catholic yeah now's not a good time we can't afford it they have all these reasons not to have right. it but, but, but we're still open to it they have that generous spirit they're just saying we're going to be open to it using the pill because I mean, right. because it's not effective, and they know that, and so they're... Yeah, that's sort of like, I'm, I'm open to the storekeeper flourishing, but I will steal some CDs from his store. <laughs> or I won't send a wedding invitation. Yeah. Um, Another example? Um, she might show, yeah, you might show up anyways, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> if she you're might throw out there's a wedding and come up. <laughs> open it means open. It's like not inviting the aunt. Okay. Open means open. Sex on an infertile day is God's way of allowing us to have sex without children. Sex just for, to put it crassly, for pleasure, for unity. Mm -hmm. And 
he set it up so that the 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 ratio is far skewed in in favor of sex without babies than sex for babies. Mm -hmm. If you chart the number of days of the year of fertile versus infertile, it's you know maybe seven to one. Is it rain? No, it's the year. So they're adding another element of closedness mm -hmm. into the scenario. Mary Rosaire Joyce is a great analogy. Uh, there's sometimes when telling the truth would be hurtful, like, back me on this. <laughs> Does this dress look me, make me look fat? <laughs> no, your fat makes you look fat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's about math. Step on the scale. <laughs> um, so sometimes it would be loving to not say anything. But if you say something that you know is false, then you've lied. You've, you've got an idea in your mind that you know is false and you're saying it is true. That's kind of like birth control. You are um, saying with the act that you're open to new life, but you're actually thwarting the very thing that you say you're being open to. It's like lying versus staying silent. Staying silent can't be wrong. Right. Staying silent being analogous to sex on an infertile day. Do you see what I mean? And I think what it really comes down to is that you are saying, because probably they're feeling like they're not ready or they're, Money. you know, whatever the reason is, but what you're really saying is, I don't trust God. I don't trust that if it does happen and he sends this gift that he's going to take care of us emotionally, physically, so financially. Well, people who are, I mean, you could argue that people who are using NFP are saying the same thing. How if their if 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 their reasons for using NFP are selfish, they are being stingy. They are sinning by omission. Mm. So what if the, they have? So so if these people have good reasons for using NFP, mm -hmm. they're not. I think the other saying, thing to look at is NFP isn't always used to prevent having children. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. What is it used? For? When's it used to, 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 to you know when you're fertile and when you're the highest person. <laughs> 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 what can you tell us? Can you tell us? Yeah. <laughs> 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 most, <laughs> most people who use NFP, uh, who go to, to a doctor to learn it, are not doing it necessarily to avoid it. It's a good, good point. They're infertile. That's why they want to maximize their chances. Mm -hmm. They don't know that NFP exists. Mm -hmm. Like Tom Hilger's, this is the... Pope Paul VI Institute for that study of human reproduction. <laughs> reproduction. Uh, he has clients from all over the world. My wife is one of his patients, and she—I mean, he—I mean, he's just like Yoda. On she began. My wife began charting. I will not get into mucus or any viscosity <laughs> questions here. Um, my wife charted for three months, uh, fertile versus infertile, and we sat down with Dr. Hildress, and he goes, "Hmm, okay, this is confirmation." Okay, so uh, has your endometriosis been treated? Uh, I don't have endometriosis. You do. I've seen two doctors in LA, really top OBs. Trust me, <laughs> you've got endometriosis. She had endometriosis. He looked, he saw the pattern uh, inside of 30 seconds and he diagnosed it. He also diagnosed uterine fibroids and a hormonal, a hormonal problem, all of which were fixed. And then, you know, uh, let's see, seven weeks later, we were pregnant with Sophia as a result of what he saw through my wife's charts. Uh -huh. So it's not just avoidance, it's also achieving. Okay. But back to your friends. Yeah, I just don't, I think for them, you would have to approach them with the argument of the abortion agent or whatever it's called, the, the, the third 
the abortifacient? Yeah, yeah, the abortifacient. Okay. Um, because just this art, it just seems to be the same thing. Their reasons, I don't really know what all their reasons are, but assuming their reasons are noble for not wanting to have kids, mm -hmm. the argument is kind of the same thing. Well, we're open to it. I mean, it's not like it's impossible. It's never impossible. If God wanted it to happen, he, he could make it happen. Let me ask you this. If it's the same, why not switch to the thing that's free and has no side effects and is relatively easy to learn? That's when couples go, oh, it's not the same. Oh, wait a second. I was just arguing that it was the same. Hmm. It's not yeah. the same because it, it, it asks for self-mastery. The pill does That's not ask. Yeah. Okay. No reason to abstain. Every day is, is equally right. sterile. Right. I've actually sterilized the, what is supposed to be the highest symbol of our self-donation, where I say, all of, I love you with all of me. I give all of me totally to you. I give every... Uh, implication, every possible effect, any any repercussion for this act, I trust God and I trust you, and I want, I want everything this act means. And the pill, if it's the pill that they're using, is I love you, but I'm going to strategize to keep out God from blessing this act, and I'm going to separate myself from you, and I'm going to use a word that we normally save for police work and the army, protect. The language of protection is the language of birth control. What are you protecting against? A harmless baby. The idea that the, the baby as evil, baby as problem, baby as burden, pregnancy as disease. The pill the only, is the only pharmaceutical product given to, to uh, um, upend or um, disable a healthy functioning organism. Usually if you have a headache, you need you know, an Advil. If you have some other problem, you know, some, if you've got diabetes, you take insulin and so on. But the pill treats pregnancy like a disorder that needs to be fixed by a, by a pill. And uh, I would just say, even on top of the abortifacient part, there's the expense, there's the shutting out the divine blessing of that act, There and there's the, if they're Catholic... They would say they're not shutting out the divine blessing because, because they're... Just because it's not completely, you cannot completely shut out, even with the pill, right? Because there's still a tiny, tiny chance that you could get pregnant. Right. I could, I could get really drunk and like play Russian roulette, and it could be God's will that I miss each time. But why would I do something that's risky that would defend God and kill me? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so what was wh the while it, thing while you it's did? while it's not, I just want to make sure that we're closing the loop a little yeah, bit. Yeah, this is big deal. Um, it sounds like that objection is based on the, that they're really the same thing. It's the same end, and therefore it doesn't matter if you use a pill or use NFP, and therefore what's the difference? Mm -hmm. Exactly. If you have two couples that both want a house, <clears throat> one couple saves 10% in a mutual fund, and they work toward it down, and they buy the house. The other couple robs a bank for the same amount of money. Aren't the ends exactly the same? Wanting a house? Mm -hmm. So the, the ends don't not only do the ends not justify the means, they don't homogenize the means. That's a pithy way of putting it. Does that make sense? Chris. Yeah, exactly. You are really good. Every time I think of three things I want to say, you say those and then ten other things. God, he's not going to be replacing me. No, my mom teaches NFP. I'm mm. glad you didn't bring up all the mucus mucosity stuff because <laughs> whenever she has people over to the house to probably over dinner too. Like, yeah. uh, what's that? 
over dinner too. No, 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 no but uh, you know. You know, I'll go find something to do outside the house. Right, you're time. just too much information. <laughs> I don't think I'm ready for that yet, but... Um, Where are you in the birth order, by the way? Number five. Number five. Out of six. So... I'm asking for a reason. You said, well, you know, the NFP doesn't work very well. That's a joke among NFP families. Mm -hmm. They're all big families. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's... The, uh, it's uh, almost... Scary. It is almost true. <laughs> but... And the reason is... Uh, the reason that the world kind of mocks them... Huh, Silly, you Sorry. know, foolish Neanderthal Catholics and, you know, ignoramai, and they want to people the world with their little vermin. And for them, uh, they actually, because they see their fertility as this great divine gift, they want to be generous with it. And so they've, half the time, they've used their uh, NFP to have more. There's a whole, I'm sorry. Chris, can I let me just finish this Go one little, yeah, yeah. little continuing thought, because I will forget. You can ask my wife how brilliant I am at forgetting things. <laughs> Um, there's a, a growing movement in Protestantism. Uh, John Kipley, uh, Sheila's wife, calls them providentialists. Mary Pride, um, Jan and Rick, uh, what's his name? Visser, I think? Or, anyway, he has a, he has a book called uh, A Full Quiver. Mary Pride has a book called All the Way Home. Uh, Charles D. Provan, Ingrid Trovich. They don't believe in any form of NFP. They think NFP is it's as bad as the pill except for the abortion thing. And they're like uh, the Protestant reformers, same thing. They believe that God made sex, God knows everything about everything, and he knows how many children he wants, so you should just trust him and just live your life. And any attempt to manipulate that is you playing God and kind of usurping him. It's fascinating. These, is, these are Bible alone, in many cases, refreshingly honest anti-Catholics. Yeah, but they have this hardcore belief that uh, any any inter interference is uh, is a grave sin. Of course, the Catholic teaching is this great via media, this uh, middle way of straddling the two worlds. There is responsible parenthood. There are some grave reasons why you should not have a child now, that it would not be responsible or loving or safe to have a baby now. Your wife said another example. So God has provided for that by awareness of female fertility so that the husband and wife together, every time the, the, the fertile days begin to loom, they have to have the conversation again. Baby or no baby, and why? What are we about as a couple? Why do we get married? What do we think of the kids we have? What if we sold the car but had another baby? What if we decided to have uh, less exotic vacations and have another baby? That conversation never has to take place when you're on the pill. And the husband never has to respect the rhythms of fertility because both spouses are unaware of it. Yes, so Chris. I am five six. My mom didn't start doing NFP until uh, she didn't start teaching it until you know long after I was born. Uh, you know, the, the sixth one was two years after me. She didn't start teaching NFP until a lot later. Although, interesting story is uh, my mom only wanted like one or two kids. Hmm. My dad told her he wanted 12. She thought he was joking when they, when they first got married. She didn't, she didn't realize that. And they, they weren't in a culture where you date for a long time and really figure out if someone actually was joking when I said that. <laughs> you mean between the joke and the punchline, they're at the altar? <laughs> no, no, no. So she thought he was joking or, or he wasn't quite serious. You know, he's being a little silly. Oh, yeah, I want 12 kids, kind of. Um, she ended up having six, and what happened was Actually, they actually wanted to have kids later on in their marriage, uh, you know, like, uh, say, like, 
saying like 12 years after my little sister, 10 or 12 years, they, they, they got pregnant. It, it was a miscarriage. And then they tried again. And that time they tried on pur they, you know, they tried on purpose to get pregnant and it was also a miscarriage. It wasn't meant to be. But the fact just having kids made her more open to wanting more kids later on in her life. But one of the things that happens with NFP classes is um, it changes the attitude towards babies. And some of the couples end up having babies soon after, even though they went in with this idea, oh, we're gonna figure out a way to do this with the church and mm -hmm. and they and they, and but not like, oh man, we had a baby, you know, we messed up, we didn't do our NFP right, but like, oh we had a baby, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. Um and going back to the sort of well, these are both uh we're both trying the same thing. Um you basically hit on it, you said, yeah, uh, they're they're two totally different means. One um uh, uses uh an artificial, you know, chemical means to prevent yourself from being pregnant, and the other one uses what God gives you. And and ultimately, the only way you end up, I think, coming to the other conclusion is when you turn it on its head and say, "Why don't I want to do the NFP?" And it usually comes down to selfish things. It, it, I don't get to have sex for a week out of the month. I don't. I. It's too. It requires a lot of work. Uh, these kinds of things, you know, when you really admit, you know, why you're not doing it is because, you know. I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way, and it's easier, and and that's that. And so when you turn it and ask that question, instead of why not use contraception, you know, why not use NFP, mm -hmm. um, it ends up, and it ends up, you know, getting to at the heart of it. So yeah. that's what that's what I would I would say. And also, I think there's a great tape, and I know I think you know the tape I'm talking about. I can't, Doctor Jane something or Jenna Smith. Smith. Yeah, Smith. contraception. Why not? Mm -hmm. She gives a lot of other reasons why contraception is bad for marriage. Some of them are, are biblical, some of them scientific. I mean, some of them are like you know theological, some of them scientific. But if you listen to that tape and you still want to do contraception, then you you know that at least you can say you've done your due diligence. I'm not saying you should do it, but you know it's definitely hard to go away from that tape and say oh wow my marriage really needs some contraception in it so. yeah one of, <laughs> one of the things that she that dr smith brings up what is the, the, uh, yeah, contraception the why not called contraception why not Janet. you can get it from omsoul.com oh. one more soul love that title i have a copy too if you want to just borrow it to you in the okay. class thanks janet smith and the uh, the ex is silent just want to see if Roberta was listening. <laughs> she also quotes the, um, there's a famous uh, international study by an Austrian doctor named Josef Rotzer that found among 1,200 NFP practicing couples in 20 years, he found a, a divorce rate of zero. What? 1,200? Wow. Mm -hmm. No divorces. Yeah. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean that NFP is a magical panacea for marital problems. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> having a specialization in marital problems myself. My wife married myself, <laughs> after all. Uh, but it's that the unity that it produces, because you're you're so in touch with how the body works, the way God made it, and you're um, you're not giving into the temptation to um, make your sex life uh, an opportunity for recreation or, or entertainment. You can't do that anymore because. It's like the difference between going hunting with a thirty odd six long barrel and a pop gun or a, a gun that shoots blanks. You know that every sex act is full of potential adventure. 
and a whole stream of events you couldn't even dream. Each sex act with a, a couple using NFP is like that. It, it retains its mystery because you're not, you're stewarding the gift of, of sexual union and fertility. You're not the arbiter of it. That's the big difference. You're not the Lord of heaven and earth with respect to whether or not this is going to result in a baby. You're actually saying, Lord, in my human wisdom, with these resources and this medical problem, we've decided, with the help of your grace, hopefully, and the teaching of the church, that now is not a good time for us to have a child. And we trust you with each act of intercourse in these infertile days that you will agree. If you've sent a surprise, we also know that you don't bring anything to fruition without taking care of it. And we know you love us, and this adventure is, was invented by you, and so we're going to trust you and to, you know, to have it work out. Um, I thought of another, another uh, NFP contraception uh, difference. Um, I'm going to say something. I was just going to mention that Christopher West takes it another direction. He says, just look back. Another way to foster kind of humility and gratitude for life is to look back and say, well, if in my family tree, I'm, at any given point, if, if uh, the man and woman had chosen, you know, contraception, I wouldn't exist at this particular time. Yeah. Like, the famous, I'm, go, I'm just going to run through just some of the biblical anchors. These are not proof texts. You know, Catholics don't believe, we don't believe that the, First of all, we don't believe the Bible alone is the only way God has revealed himself, but we also don't look to individual lines in the Bible as proof texts because they, there's an old saying, a text without a context is a pretext. But <laughs> most people think that the Bible is silent. It says nothing about birth control. And uh, if, you, if you've got a pen and paper, I'll just run through them very quickly. A sample. This is a sample. I could've, this is, could have been a, the longest chapter in my book. The first commandment of God to mankind is the commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not a little memo. It is a commandment to have sex. Before the Ten Commandments, before the, uh, the, the Mosaic Law, before the, anything to do with the Deuteronomic Code, there's this fundamental primordial command. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful is the sex part. The multiply is the, the, uh, the generosity part. And how, how, how different that is from contraception, which says you know, be, be sterile and divide. <laughs> so Genesis 1, 27 and 28. You can call this babies or blessings. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, which is, And God created man in his own image and likeness. In the image of God, he created them. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill, I love this, <laughs> fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves in the earth. Fill the earth. I have a chapter. Did I mention I was writing a book? <laughs> <coughs> I have a chapter called uh, Answering Chicken Little. It's on the uh, overpopulation scare. And uh, it's, just, it's just one of the... Forget it. <laughs> so I want to go into that whole tributary. So Genesis 1, 27, verses 28. That commandment is actually given three times in the Bible, not just once. Genesis 9, 1. Genesis chapter 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's Genesis 9, 1. Again, uh, Genesis 35, 11. Genesis 35, 11. Now, he's, <clears throat> first he was dressing Adam with this nuptial marital covenant. 
Then he's addressing Noah with this family um, domestic covenant, and now he's broadening it to Abraham, to a, a, a tribal covenant. Genesis 35:11 is, And God said to him, it's Abraham, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, uh, 2 to 4 and verse 11. Deuteronomy 2, 28, verses 2 to 4 and 11. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessings, remember. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of the beast. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your body and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of the ground which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. So children are obviously divine blessings that are inseparable from the other elements of God's provision and care. I won't read them off, but I'll, I'll give them to you. You can look them up later if you want <clears throat> in case you meet a, a Bible Christian who is, or a Catholic who wants to justify it on biblical grounds. First Chronicles 25, 4 and 5. First Chronicles 25, verses 4 and 5. And First Chronicles 26, 4 and 5. First Chronicles 26, verses 4 and 5. The idea of, of, of children always being blessings. And incidentally, I won't go into it now because we just don't have time, but uh, sterility is always ren rendered as a, a curse in the Old Testament. Sterility, a, a blemish of the genitals, a, a, um, whether it's uh, accidental or, or congenital, is seen as a, a blemish. A man who had crushed testicles, for example, was not able to, wasn't allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. So sterility is a curse, and, and fertility is a blessing. Always, no exceptions. The universal reaction of women in the Old Testament who have no children is always sorrow. There's no Old Testament word for bachelor, interestingly enough. Mm. The only, the real bachelors are, are exceptions in the Old Testament. One may have been, um, I think Melchizedek was seen as a kind of a celibate figure. And also the prophet Jeremiah, God asked Jeremiah not to marry. Those are the only exceptions. Everything else is this very Jewish idea of a home without children is a home without a blessing. And I'll, I'll give you two more. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. Lo, sons are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the, of the womb a reward. Like the arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. He shall not be ashamed when he meets his enemies at the gate. This is a classic Protestant text. A quiver is, of course, a, a shoulder-mounted um, pouch or sheath holding arrows. Um, most archaeologists, archaeologists believe this between 15 and 12 and 15 arrows could fit in your average Hebrew warrior's um, quiver. Not exact, huh? Yeah, well, based on, based on artwork and, and extra-biblical evidence, yeah. That does not mean that you have to have 12 kids minimum. <laughs> the couple who, who has been fully open with their fertility and only have two kids could be just, they, their, their quiver could be theoretically fuller than a couple with five kids who decide to contracept after number five. So the, the fullness is not derived mathematically, but, but, uh, but volitionally, put it that way. Um, yeah, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. How many, how many arrows does a warrior want to go into battle with? One or two? Or like a mother load? Yeah, 100. <laughs> and also this, you know, God's word is, it's interesting how the little 
the finesse of details can can be seen if you if you're looking closely enough. An arrow is is something that a warrior sends away from himself, a trajectory up and outward, like a child. A child starts from you, from your body, and then has its own trajectory outward in time, in, in the future. You fling them with new Russian birth techniques <laughs> from the operating theater to first grade. So that's Psalm, 20, Psalm 127. Now the granddaddy of them all is the famous Onan account. Onan is, uh, this is in chapter 38 of, of Genesis. There are many, many others. There are literally dozens more, by the way. But the Onan account is very interesting because it is the, the one uh, classic text that it, the church does employ. It was first employed in 1930 in Pope Pius XI's encyclical Casti Canubii, which was the Catholic response to the Anglican rejection of the Christian teaching, which happened in August of that year, 1930, the Anglicans gave Christianity contraception by their um, um, the clause in what's called their Lambeth. Every 10 years they have a Lambeth conference. And in that 1930 Congress uh, conference in 19, uh, sorry, yeah, 1930 in the summertime, they said only in marriage, only under strict conditions, only for the absolutely extraordinary reasons, a couple then could use birth control. And that was the first domino in the incredible collapse of non-Catholic um, support of the idea that contraception is, is immoral. So when the Pope stood up to reply to this, it's actually on marriage, it's, um, it's on chaste marriage, but there's a big section on birth control. He quotes Onan, the Onan account, and also St. Augustine's commentary on Onan. So we have this in good authority that this is an explicit example. And here's the text. Now this little story here, um, chapter 37 of Genesis is Joseph. You know Joseph in Amazing Technical Dream Cup? His brothers are like annoyed with him because he, the father loves Joseph apparently more because he reminds them of Rachel, the mom who's now dead. Uh, uh, Joseph and Benjamin are brothers by Rachel, the wife of Jacob. And it, it picks up in chapter 39 with Joseph after being sold away to, uh, given up for dead and sold to slavery in Egypt, he's now being blessed by God as a servant of Potiphar. So it's, it's interesting how this narrative of Onan is wedged in a story about a child being rejected by the family. So here it is. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned, uh, turned to a certain Abdullamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah... Uh, saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So Judah now sees Shua and marries her. Judah married Shua and uh, went into her and she conceived and bore a son and, and she called his name Ur, E-R. Again she conceived and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. She was in Shizib when she bore him and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So here we got um, Judah and his three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now Ur dies. We don't know why, but the Lord was not happy and he slew him. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord slew him. Then Judah said to Onan, Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. This is a reference to an old, it's a, it's a Near Eastern custom called the Law of the Levirate. The Levirate Law or Custom 
said that if a man's, uh, if, if a husband died before the wife could give birth to children, the brother or another male relative would marry her, and the children from that union would be the dead brother's family line and possession. That's what that is. There was a penalty for refusing the Leverett law, and it's outlined in the chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, if you want to write that down. The man who refused that, uh, that duty to uh, marry his brother's widow was humiliated in a little kind of embarrassing public ceremony where the, the, the widow would take the sandal of the accused guy and, and take it off and spit on him, and he would forever be called uh, from the house of the unshod, which apparently is a really embarrassing thing. But that was the, the Deuteronomic uh, punishment for not raising up children for your, for your spouse. For your, I'm sorry, for the living widow of the brother who's dead. Here's what happens, though, with Onan. Uh, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he spilled his seed on the ground lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did, underline, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. This is one of the few times where God directly executes the death penalty for a sin. It, some, a lot of commentators believe that Ur did the same thing. Um, it's not, the text doesn't say it directly. But Onan obviously withdraws before the act of intercourse is complete, and he spills his seed on the ground because he didn't want to give his brother offspring. The difference between what Onan did and what someone who broke the Leverett law was similar to the difference between NFP and contraception. If someone doesn't want to marry the the wife of your brother, you just would stay away and not do it. Onan made a spectacle or a, a, a kind of um, a fiction of his union with her, and he withdrew before the act was complete. That's the difference. So he defrauded uh, his brother and the wife by con contracepting, and that's what gave. That's what earned him the uh, the death penalty. Onanism is also the old-fashioned traditional term for masturbation for the same reason. Fascinatingly enough, all of the uh, biblical prohibitions against um, contraception are related to semen. They're not related to um, the female uh, aspect of sexual union. Even lesbianism in Leviticus is not condemned by the death penalty, whereas all sexual perversions involving the spilling of seed or the depositing of seed in, in an inappropriate um, object are. So, what? there it is. Uh, good question. What do you think that is? Since it takes two to tango and all that? Because it's inhibiting God's natural purpose for creating semen. I th yeah, I think so. I think so. Some dissenters argue that the writers of the Bible were pre-scientific pre and these poor souls couldn't have understood that semen is not like a collection of little men that go in and germinate, you know, as many medievals thought. Uh, and so therefore, this moral lesson has no force. The problem is, it, it doesn't matter what they believed at the same time, because God inspired them to write it, and the church has always used this as a foundation for why uh, each sex act ought to be, you know, complete and open to new life. I believe it has to do with, with men the Old Testament writers didn't know this, but I think it's because men specially image Christ in their um, sacrificial um, actions toward the woman. 
the woman's role in the sex act and and in if you read uh, chapter five of Ephesians, we didn't get to Ephesians, but it's, it's one of the great, beautiful teachings on marriage. You know, the big bad wives be subject to your husbands thing. Husbands should actually complain a lot more about that because they have to image Christ's love for the for the church, and he did that by dying for her. So all the woman has to do is enjoy the sacrificial service of her husband. But I digress. <laughs> so I think because in the sex act, the man is the active principle that, uh, and, and because men can impregnate 10,000 women, but a woman can only be pregnant one, mm-hmm. one thing at a time, the uh, scripture understands that most of the sexual perversions are committed by men. Homosexuality is far more common than lesbianism. Pornography is by far marketed to men than to women. Um, all of the Old Testament, the, the, script, the strictures on divorce are all revolve around the bad behavior of men, which is why the Pharisees try to trip Jesus up. And is you know the question about divorce? That might be a good segue. Matthew 19. Uh, Luke and Mark both record this with no exceptions at all. Matthew does seem to include an exception. This is... I think, uh, was, it when the, was it when they asked him if Moses' law, why, why would he allow a divorce? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he yeah. says, because you guys were, because the hardness of your heart. So, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah he's, he's harking back. Uh, Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the, uh, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him there and, and he healed them. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Now, the test they're giving is to see which side of the divide Jesus uh, sits on. The side of the Rabbi Shammai or the Rabbi Hillel. The Rabbi Shammai was a very popular rabbi and his um, criteria for divorce were quite high. It had to be abusive, it had to be adulterous, it had to be something you know dysfunctional before a, a husband could give his wife a writ of divorce. Hillel was the whatever the hell theory. You know, she's suddenly a little fat now. <laughs> she, I, she's bad breath. She, you know, this a much more liberal interpretation of Shammai's standard. So the test is designed to see what Christ would answer. Is it lawful, they asked, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? I.e., was Shammai right or was Shammai wrong? His replies, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but three. Therefore what God has joined together, let, let man not separate. So he's, he, no longer two, but three? They're, or no lo- did I say two, but three? Yeah. 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 Oh, Dr. Freud, you slipped. Excuse me. <laughs> ah, Freudian slip. Yeah, they're no longer... Let's talk about the Trinity and let's talk about children. They're no longer one, but two. It's a very, no very amusing mistake. <laughs> there are no longer two but one. There are no longer two but one. Uh, therefore, <laughs> don't turn on me now. Now's when I need you the most. Uh, therefore, what God has joined, let no man, let, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, I want you to listen to the answer and tell me when bells go off. Here's Jesus' reply. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between husband and wife, it's better not to marry. 
Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it's been given. Any bells go off? Marriage isn't for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Except for marital unfaithfulness. This is the NIV. Unfortunately, uh, English does not render this terribly well. Sometimes it says, except in the case of adultery, it sounds like a big fat loophole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No divorce. It's outrageous. <clears throat> adultery is different. <clears throat> He's not saying that at all. The word in Greek is porneia, and porneia has a wide, uh, a wide meaning. Um, it could mean adultery, but it could also mean uh, blood relations, like an incestuous bond, which is forbidden by, by, Levit- by Leviticus as well. If he just means adultery, their response doesn't make any sense. And nothing that happens in the rest of the chapter makes any sense. If this is a situation between a husband and wife, they said, it's better not to marry. Well, wait a second, no. Jesus would simply be repeating what sh- the Shammai standard was. There'd be no controversy at all. They'd be like, oh yeah, so he's, he's a Shammai guy. The fact that he says, if you marry, if you leave your wife and marry another, you commit adultery, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness, that uh, that totally contradicts the exclusive, uh, you know, no no uh, exception yeah. idea. But porneia doesn't mean that. The church has always said that that word, the Greek word porneia, means unless you're already in a relationship of marriage that was illicit to begin with, in which case it shouldn't have happened. In other words, only in a parent marriage. Then, so Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it's been given. Wait, I so it's a calling. Yeah. Can you give yeah, an example? I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm give not following. All right. So what does that mean? That, that phrase that it translates as adultery? Oh, this says, except for marital unfaithfulness. Yeah, in English. <laughs> marital unfaithfulness. Do you have time to get into a little bit of a annulment in the whole? Yeah, I do. Sure. Because I think we're getting yep. close to that. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, well, Roberta was late, so I mean... No, I mean, we're <laughs> close to the subject. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, it works till 7, thank you. Uh, yes. Tell me where you lost. So, so what did Jesus mean when he said, except for? Yeah, except for, except if you're in a marriage that is incestuous to begin with. If you married some, some uh, a family member... See, there's another word... I forget how it's pronounced. I want to say mochewa, mochewa or mocheu, which is literally sex with someone not your spouse. That's used everywhere else, but it's not here. Pornea is used here. So Jesus is saying you can't get divorced unless you're married to someone you're related to. Yes, in which case that would not be a valid marriage, marriage to begin with. Right. In which case then you can, you're free to marry because that was fundamentally married. forbidden. Well, why does it want to say that? Why is it translated as that's this is a I, I got this because it has Jesus in red this is a classic Protestant this is an NIV Bible published by Zondervan otherwise it's it's pretty good but there are some little isms yeah I mean yeah there's there are a couple examples of, of that um, thou shalt not kill is not a great translation it doesn't mean that it means thou shalt not murder killing in self-defense killing in war even to say it, even killing for uh, capital punishment is not intrinsically evil, but murder is always intrinsically evil. That's why the the um, very popular idea that you have to be consistent in your pro-life ethic and therefore you have to be pro-life on abortion and pro-life anti-death penalty, they're totally different issues. The church has never said that, that, that capital punishment is always and everywhere wrong. It says that it, it ought to be um, administered in very rare cases. So Jesus is saying there's never, it's never okay to get divorced. It is never okay to remarry. 
The issue is not divorce. Oh. Divorce is a legal document by the state mm -hmm. that indicates that you're legally married. And, and you can and property law and, and who's going to be the heir of whom is determined by, by that document, by whether or not you're divorced. Right. It's remarrying someone you, mar you were married to. Catholics who are divorced are, are equal Catholics with everyone else. They can go to the sacraments. They can live their Christian life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is the remarriage. You know, Liz Taylor had like nine, nine husbands, eight husbands. In God's eyes, she had Still one alive. husband. She had her first husband. Her first husband was her, was the, the valid one. And what about if that was family? Going back to the earlier part, you said if it's oh, that would related, be that would have been. It's uh, still okay to get the divorce, but you still can't remarry then. Is no, you you saying? could you if you were if you were married, with a consanguine member, someone sharing your blood, sister, father, uncle, aunt, then that marriage was illicit to begin with and would be legally quashed. It wouldn't even have been a real marriage. So in that you sense, you can get remarried. Then you could get remarried, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only exception. That's the only exception. You're right. Genevieve, I have the same complaint. I have the same complaint about the, if only the English carried the same, right. Yes. Now, what about like a widow? Somebody dies, can they remarry then? Yeah, yeah uh, death ends the bond of marriage. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Till death yeah. do us part. Till death do us part. Yep, yeah. <laughs> that is the part. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I want to no, post death clause. She's not marrying anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> death do us part. from your vantage point in heaven, you might be able to work a lot of things out. Like, you know, um, that's a good premise for a movie. What, then what's the, uh, the annulment part? Oh, yeah. good question. I'm glad you got to that. An annulment. The Catholic Church teaches that every natural law marriage is indissoluble. If you're a Buddhist in Tibet and your marriage ceremony was jumping over two twigs and said ooga booga and you meant it for life, <laughs> then that's, that is a real indissoluble marriage. That natural... Nobody I, I found that funny. Nobody was listening, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, we were listening, yeah. She has my back. She <laughs> does. <laughs> I, just, I just, <laughs> yeah. found that funny. It was Thank the whole you. image. Don't apologize. <laughs> Go. So, so we're Deanna left. Yeah, there's Deanna left. Deanna So, but now that, see, Catholics are, hired, are, are called to a higher standard because we have, we have the Lord Jesus Christ at the heart of our marriages, hopefully. I mean, he's the glue that binds husband and wife. It's a beautiful book, a great book gift idea for someone like newlyweds uh, or, or marrieds who are <laughs> argue constantly. It's by Fulton Sheen, my man. Uh, it's called Three to Get Married. Three to Get Married, the third being Christ. Aww. It's a beautiful uh, um, book on marriage. So the church teaches that if you freely consented in this adventure between two sexually attracted people, <laughs> then God gives you the grace to live out all the caca that will emerge in, in a relationship. All the things that annoy the person, all the things you wish they weren't like, all the marriage difficulties. Um, you know, when I got married, I couldn't have dreamt how difficult it would be and how... There's a great... Uh, there's an article by Maggie Gallagher, a marriage... Researcher, it's called marriage is hell. Get over it. <laughs> and her point is this: the fluffy confetti, <coughs> pink bunny idea of of wedding, as opposed to the daily slog of marriage, is half the reason why why couples separate. Because a year and a half later, 
when that toothpaste when that toothpaste tube is off for the 18 millionth time, and you want to scream, you know, you wake up and it's the same person you're married to, and the next day it's the same thing. Uh, but I couldn't have dreamt that it would be this good. That you know, the day I married her, I, I can't, I couldn't imagine loving her more. And a year later, I loved her more, and yet I couldn't imagine loving her more. And this is, you know, we're almost seven years now. We uh, we had a baby daughter who died uh, two years ago. Uh, that was, uh, you know, an unbelievable. That was the kind of trial that can break up marriages. Uh, death of a child is a very difficult thing. And, um, you know, when people say, oh, you were, you were very courageous or heroic, I laugh. I'm a coward to the, to the bone. But we do have the gift of faith. And when you see events like that through the eyes of faith, it's, it's, like, a, it's like an upward fall. It's the only way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, her name is Naomi. She's a great intercessor. If you want to pray, pray to St. Naomi. She was uh, baptized and confirmed and had the sacrament of the sick on the same day. So she was packed and ready. So this great adventure, God gives the grace to live it out. But some marriages that are entered into, when they are entered into, did not satisfy the criteria for true marriage. And there, the canon law allows for, for several things to have uh, been at play on the day they married. Homosexuality that was not disclosed to the spouse is, is an impediment to, to sacramental marriage. Drug addiction at the time of the marriage is an impediment to marriage. That would be grounds for annulment. Drug addiction that develops later is not. Uh, impotence. If the husband cannot achieve erection, they cannot marry. If the husband is sterile, i.e. he doesn't have the sufficient sperm count and never will, it is not that is that's not satisfied because the body is able to deposit sperm. That is the canonical definition of a consummated marriage: is the depositing of uh, of semen in the in the in the wife. Um, let's see. Uh, These are all questions that mental. Like marriage counseling, right? Like the whole. I don't know how. I don't. I don't remember it being brought up. Yeah. I guess. They, I mean, the, yeah. Some those, of those questions. I mean, it's yeah. not like you'd be like, "Hey, buddy," you know. Right. Well, some of them I think the girl could figure out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, some you could while you're dating, but yeah. some of those other very intimate questions, like, are you sterile, you know, things like that. Well, or, some, um, some of them can't, that, can't you know. be known. Sure. Yeah. You can't know about your low oh. sperm count, oh, yeah. necessarily. Mm -hmm. Even if you're married 10 years, you have no kids. You don't know if the problem is you or some infertility on the, on the woman's part. Mm -hmm. So that would have to be tested. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to get your sperm count tested to have a valid marriage. Right. If yeah. it's found out later that you don't, that's not a grounds for, uh, for annulment. But mm -hmm. are they weird yeah. questions, or does society make us feel like they're weird questions? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I don't think it's a weird qu I mean, that's your whole life with this person. Yeah. yeah. But some I don't know if it would be wise to ask a guy that. So, are you in Yeah, mind? yeah. Do you like walking uh, midnight walks, uh, pina colada, beach? Uh, total of your sperm count? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Independently reviewed sperm count, please. Great, like, Facts uh, to my Catholic. Facts to me. Oh, I have a nice date last night. Or at least Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah, you Saturday Night Live sketch. Mental illness is a Duramin impediment. If you're, if you're severely mentally. Um, before? When you contract, when you contract to the marriage, a mental illness that's developed later is, not, is usually does not qualify. 
So it's all conditions at the time. Conditioned at the time, yes. Um, this goes back to the whole point is that it wasn't valid at the time. No, it wasn't valid at the time. It's not like it becomes invalid later. That's it's correct. That they found out it's new information that wasn't that that was present but not not known. Right. It's it's an an attempted marriage. And it's not annulment's not the proper way to say it. It's the decree of nullity. It's a recognition that the I will and I do that were spoken on the altar so many years ago, how, however long, were, they were not able to say those with the intention of, mar of, of entering into what marriage requires. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a dissolving of a marriage. It's a recognition that there was no marriage. Mm -hmm. And the children of, a, of a, an annulled couple are not legally or sacramentally illegitimate because it was putatively entered into like a real marriage and they did their best. They couldn't have foreseen that the children that would result from that union would, would be, you know, be left with, with parents who weren't married. So it's very, psychologically, that would be important to know. If my parents ever got an annulment, you know, Dad, you always called me a bastard, now it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, can that be edited out? I'm just curious. <laughs> That's that so, the uh, best one. Best line. <laughs> so a little bit of an extreme here, but just kind of yeah. No, sure. <laughs> so the first marriage goes through with uh, Uga Uga and jumping over the sticks. Yes. <laughs> they, they get divorced and they're whatever they're whatever that is. Get yeah. married to the next person and they're Uga Uga jump over the sticks. Yeah. And then become Catholic. Or yeah. Join the Catholic Church. Lucky. Would yeah. they say that they need to get divorced because they? can't get remarried because it's the second marriage? That's a good question. Um, let's see. Post Uga Uga. That is a canonical question mm -hmm. that I don't want to pronounce upon. I don't know the full answer. I believe that the first marriage, since it, it affects the good of the faith of the current spouses, I think the favor, I think a tribunal would favor annulling the first marriage. There are, this is speaking of extreme, there are examples of marriages that are dissolved, actual marriages that are dissolved, that are not divorce and it's not annulment. Uh, one is called the Petrine privilege, which is extremely rare, and that uh, the Petrine privilege happens when a spouse wants to join religious life, feels called, called, called by God to religious life. Normally it happens after childbearing years. And for the good of the of the faith of both couples, that marriage can be dissolved, but that, that dissolution is reserved to the Roman pontiff, to the Pope alone. It's extremely rare. And it's not because they hate each other, it's from some additional divine call in their life. And the other one is the Pauline privilege that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, I think, chapter 7. And that is if, if, uh, if a wife's abandoned by, say, an, if a wife is, is unequally yoked to an unbeliever, mm -hmm. that marriage if she if she were to meet someone else, if it's like abuse or whatever, for the sake of the for the good of the faith, I think the phrase is that marriage could be dissolved too. But uh, those are the only exceptions. You know, now we that think I got of the rules down. I know I'm gonna approach this. There's a ver there are two volumes by Michael Truman. Uh, Michael kidding, Truman, easy to remember, is, is true he, man. Michael Truman and Pete Ver, V E R E. It's called, there are two volumes, volume one and volume two, Surprised by Canon Law. Hmm. Excellent. They call it, cover all this. What is it called? Surprised by Canon Law, one and two. How do you spell Canon? C-A-N-O-N. Okay. C-A-N-O-N.
So, so basically, an annulment, a decree of nullity is the after being assessed by a diocesan marriage tribunal, interviewing the couple, interviewing, getting, gathering all the evidence that they can. Uh, it's the determination that the marriage was only apparently entered into and was not a, a sacramentally valid, so it didn't exist as a sacramental marriage. It was an apparent marriage. That's what an annulment is. Again, mental illness, homosexuality, drug addiction. Um, in some cases, there's a new, a relatively new category called psychic incapacity. Someone with a like a really subtle sociopathic condition that was not, they couldn't know at the time, but it was back when you look back, you see it even before you know during during dating. Um, certain uh, personality disorders, like BPD, borderline personality disorder, I believe is one of them, mm. where the person cannot be married. They, they don't have the ability to, to live it out. Uh, also, you have to be open to new life. Um, the, uh, for the marriage to be valid, it has to be ratified on the altar and then consummated. And a couple that consummates the marriage using contraception have committed objectively a, a sacrilege because they have not performed a marital act. They performed an act where the procreative dimension and the unitive dimension have been severely compromised. So it has to be an act that's open to new life. That would be another example of a rare thing. Let's say a guy marries his, his honey on a dock in wartime. I love you, I love you too. Are you a rabbi? Yes, come here. <laughs> I will, I do, or you priest or whatever. And they, they pronounce I will and I do, and they, someone throws confetti, and the guy goes off in his worship to war. And then uh, a year later, oh, you think suffering is fun? Okay. <laughs> no. So, so then he he really marries his true love, and he realized that that first thing was wonky and it was a mistake, and it wasn't consummated. That would be a uh, ratified but non-consummated marriage, and that could be dissolved because it didn't have that second mm. element. You know, We're talking I'm rare. Sorry. This is rare. No, because and then there's those people that like will marry. So that someone can stay in the country and stuff like that. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that's <laughs> arguably C.S. Lewis, at the time he entered, mm. did not have a valid marriage either. Mm. At least it was compromised. That's a really good example. Mm. He married uh, Joy Davidman on uh, practically on her deathbed, and uh, she had bone cancer and she wanted to stay in England, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. So, but he didn't leave her. So who knows? Um, yeah, so that would be just using the person, just going through uh, lying in public. Would that be a, I mean, knowing that in advance? Is your question, is, is it a valid marriage, or is it it's a sin? Or is it wrong? Is, is, is it, wrong? it wrong? Yeah, it's wrong. Okay. Yeah, it's a sin. It's a sin to lie to a public magistrate who represents the government, yeah. Yeah. Cheating on your taxes is a sin. Speeding is a sin. Habitual smoking is a sin. And then there was a new sin, so then there's the nuisance yeah. in that recycling. That has to do with the game oh, of poker. Oh, I for the ignorance of one minute ago when I didn't know the speeding was <laughs> Yeah, the catechism condemns an excessive, excessive love of speed. I've got temporary amnesia. I don't know what you just said. <laughs> no, no, what? An excessive love of speed? An excessive love of speed, yeah. Love. Oh, I don't love it. Okay. Love of What's speed? The question on yeah. the because that. Well, it's <laughs> an excessive love of speed. We'd be like, da na 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 you know, doing your Batman imitation uh, <laughs> <laughs> on, 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 on a country road at night. When you're, you're I love speed, so I'm a little worried right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's excessive. 
Do you mean it, do you mean amphetamines or no, vehicular no, no. speed? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, going fast. Yeah. I like it. And we're not talking roller coaster type speed. You mean like behind the wheel no, type I'm speed? No, I'm talking roller coaster. It just seems a funny way to phrase it. I just oh, it it, it doesn't it, the speed itself because when you fly and you fly anywhere, you're yeah, doing you're 700 miles fast. an hour. <laughs> but the air in the plane is not moving. <laughs> Listen to me. Clearly, <laughs> what it's referring to. It's referring to lives at risk. to yeah, yeah, putting lives at risk okay. and not yeah. stewarding your own life. Yeah, that's what it means. Pithily put. <laughs> you said something about gambling. Yes. What did you say about poker? Oh, he was talking about the new sins. I said those unfortunately have to do with the game of poker, the new sins. But that right. was a, uh, oh. a joke. I was kidding. Oh, I saw. <laughs> I was just joking. I didn't laugh. So it was not funny. And wasn't well, the, therefore it was not funny, or, or even a joke. Yeah, I didn't even look at those. Usually, that's like an, uh, something that a cardinal says in an interview. It's not like. And then non-Catholics go, "Oh, what, yeah, are you, know, what they're doing?" The and then we, then I read it, and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, cloning's wrong, and and stem cells wrong. That's not really a new sin. It's just uh, well, pollution is in there now." Yeah, yeah. And well, yeah, I mean, it would. Yeah, but that's, yeah, these are all things that have kind of always been around. That, right. Yeah. Now it's official. Yeah, yeah pollution. Yeah, that would be that would be a uh, an abuse of that's an abuse of the goodness of creation. Car in the Bible, right? I think Earth is very comparable to marriage. You think what? Earth is very comparable to marriage. The Dominion things often taken too far. Earth is comparable to marriage. Yeah. Because you were you were just quoting the. Um, I'm sorry to go off this. Point oh no, that's okay. Quick, but. Um, you're referring to the take dominion of the earth right next to the be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of us Christians actually take that too far sometimes and just getting a little flippant. With the dominion. Saying we can take dominion. Right. Yeah, so right. Yeah, like oh. as if. Just like marriage, we're supposed to love the earth, I think. No, that's good. Yeah, and and care for the earth, yeah. So. Yeah, that's good. Actually, you, you, you're saying a lot there. The word mother, mater in Latin, is the same cognate as matter. Stuff, the maternal principle is the one close to the earth. In Hinduism, the mother, the the woman is the earth, and the husband is the sky. Um, you know, we we come from the matter of our mothers from the first moment of our existence in a way that we don't come from our fathers. That's why God is essentially masculine, even though he's not male. He's above gender, but still, God enters creation. God is like a um, Christ enters us by His grace and impregnates us with His charity and his mercy um, uh, God like a human father God is above he's transcendent he's outside of creation as the human father is outside so to speak of their of the children so that yeah that's right I was just going to close with this since you brought that up this is the the most loathed most misunderstood reading uh, it's the one reading that priests do not want to be asked to uh, to have during wedding ceremonies and I think it's the most one of the most profound and beautiful and it's one of the main pillars of John Paul II's theology of the body. Uh, it's Ephesians 5. Now we'll just close with that. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, the husbands, sorry, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. John Paul II ties this reading to contraception by saying the tantalizing secret of God that he kept hidden from humanity for ages and ages finally came to fruition in the incarnation where he himself appears in history as a, as a bridegroom wedding his bride and therefore Christianity is God's marriage proposal to the soul and as Christ gave his body, he didn't, you know, at the Last Supper, he didn't say, this is my spirit broken for you, this is my mind, this is my idea, this is my doctrine, this is my body given for you. And the Holy Father likens giving of the body in Holy Communion to giving of the body in sexual union, in marriage. So contraception would be the equivalent of Christ saying, this is my body withheld from you. So, that's the tie-in. Any other questions? I've kind of gone over a little bit. Roberta, your, your brow is noticeably furrowing. Well, I was wondering, um, a couple that does practice NLP, I don't know if we have time, um, for the reason not to have kids, what are the reasons? What are the good reasons? Oh, the great question. Yeah. The, the reasons have to be determined by the couple, but there's some basic guidelines. Okay. Sociological reasons. Okay. Um such as, by sociological, I mean, I really mean economic. The husband has lost his job, okay. and he's been out of job for two years. And they have three children, and they sincerely aware that, that a fourth child with no job would, would send them under. Okay. The church doesn't insist that, that Catholic mothers be baby factories, in other words. So it could be economic. It could be mental. Uh, the, the mother or the father could be severely depressed. Depression is a is a debilitating condition that is uh, would be a great reason to not have further more children. Um, so things like that. Okay. It could be even, um, I had a philosophy professor who he and his wife have 10 children and he felt that if he's working on a book and can't be there sufficiently you know, to help the, the wife, that would be a reason to abstain because the addition of another child or two kids would subtract from his ability to provide for the others. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have to be careful about kind of pointing fingers about who's got a... You know, Satan loves to divide us, and there's very few groups in the church that are more divided than, like, pro-lifers' strategy, and they anathematize each other, and they pontificate about what's the best thing. It's amazing. The same thing can happen among Orthodox Catholics who believe that NFP is the right thing to do. Yeah, so that would, those, those are... Yeah, grave. It's you mentioned the word noble. It has to be a noble reason, but noble because grave or serious or or just. You know, and that's that's relates to what I said earlier about generosity. Generosity should be the first criteria. That should be the standard, not how few kids can we have, but how generous can we be reasonably, and still exercise responsible parenthood. And that that's the question that is is rarely asked and really should be. Actually, um, known a number of the full quiver people. Oh, really? Yeah. 
I can't remember his name. Rick and Jan. I want to say Hess. H-E-S-S. I don't know. I guess maybe there's a couple of people I use the term, but uh. um, folk with her Protestant background. Right. And a lot of them are really, really great people. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because there's also a number of families I've known um, who I think adopted it sort of out of a countercultural thing mm-hmm. and a legalistic thing, and um, there was very, very little love in it. Um, so I think, so actually it's kind of funny, a lot of the big families that I grew up around were those families, and I don't think their hearts were 100% in it, so I thought that big families all smelled like urine and ate fibrous food. Right. <laughs> it's just They're like, all back, back to the landers. You know, what's, what's with these weird people? <laughs> um, but since then, I've actually met some people whose hearts are really, truly, um, I think they really, truly love their children. Full quiver, full quiver ones. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, other people who don't. Huh. Uh, it's not completely full quiver, but um, when you say legalistic, it can just be a beautiful, beautiful image. When you say legalistic, do you mean really pushing the 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 baby factory model? Legalistic is in. I'm going to do this because it's a rule. Oh, I, I see. And not so much. Out of right. Yeah. Gotcha. You mentioned the Christopher West's example of uh, who gets canceled out. Right. By by birth control. Right. If you if you go into a room and asked uh, a room full of dissenters, you know how many think birth control is okay? All the hands go up. How many think birth control is okay the night you were conceived? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now some I'm sure are are, are consistent. They would mm-hmm. prefer non-being to being, <laughs> arguing that they didn't they wouldn't have known any different. You know? But Rick Hess in in the, the a full quiver, uh, is talking about the brothers of Joseph. I'm sorry, the the brother yeah. The, the Joseph's brothers who sold him away, you know, to the hairy Ishmaelites, and he ended up in in uh, in Egypt. It's a beautiful type of Christ, by the way. Joseph is a really stunning uh, foretaste of of Christ. It's a, the parallels are really lovely. Um, he says they had a, they obviously had a birth control mentality, and they probably didn't want the next one to come either, Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Let, let's say that Rachel practiced birth control with Benjamin, and, they, and so they had eleven, not twelve. <clears throat> Everyone today would find that perfectly rational to have 11 as opposed to 12. He said, but if you were to open your New Testament, it would look really, really thin hmm. because Romans, First and Second Corinthians, uh, Ephesians, the bulk of the New Testament would be gone because Paul says in Romans that he's a proud member of the tribe of Benjamin. So you take out Benjamin, <laughs> your, your New Testament almost disappeared. Anyway, thank you so much for listening patiently, and I'm, I'm just really so glad I could be here. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, take care, and God bless.